archaeologists find King Solomon's mines. That's a big deal. I thought, wow, why didn't I hear about this before this? Because apparently it was discovered in 2006. Well, up till this time, only in the last few months, they thought that this mine that they discovered... Go ahead and put that image of the mine up on the screen. They thought that this mine dated back to 800 B.C., which is not during King Solomon's time. 950 to 1,000 B.C. would be during King Solomon's time. However, some archaeologists continued digging deeper, and they found shards of pottery and copper that authenticated that indeed... At 1000 B.C., Solomon did have mines in this area. So I started reading the article, and I got farther down in the article, and I came across this statement, which really irritated me. The announcement will reopen the debate about how much of the Old Testament is myth. Is Satan alive and well? Archaeologists authenticating that Solomon, who's been questioned whether or not he is real, has now been challenged by the archaeological world. That's fine. God is not shuddering in his kingdom over that statement. But it just reminded me again, the battle continues. There's no myth in the Old Testament. It's all real. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. As a matter of fact, it is the nature of man to be skeptical. You and I, if we were honest with ourselves, would say, we're pretty skeptical people. We cast aspersions at Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, and we actually label him, calling him Doubting Thomas. But he's probably more like you and I than we would be willing to admit. It's our nature to be skeptical and have to be convinced it's also our nature that we are bound by time and space. We are locked into this mortal earth that we're part of. And if we're going to discover anything about God, if we're going to know more of his nature and character, he's going to have to reveal it to us. It's called revelation. God is going to have to come to us, just like the book Revelation, and show us what is about to be. He's going to reveal to us. Now, Revelation has come about in some pretty amazing fashion throughout the history of time. Think of the angels showing up outside of a city called Bethlehem and singing across the sky. Hey, pay attention. There's one coming among you. He's God. Revelation comes about when God walks upon the earth and says, I'm going to do some things. Pay attention. I'm going to walk on the water. I'm going to feed 5,000 people. I'm going to make some blind people who have never seen in their life see. I'm going to raise some people from the dead. Pay attention. God is among you. He's revealing himself to you. And then revelation also comes in some very simplistic fashion. As we discovered last week, from behind the walls of prison, slaves who've been carried off into bondage can write down things about God. God's saying, I'm here. Pay attention. As a matter of fact, this is the way he actually says it in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God is making his imprint 
very, very obvious. But the world would choose to say, uh, we're going to decide how much of this is myth and how much of this is real. So that we're without excuse. Hey, pay attention. You're part of something much, much bigger than your life. There's a way bigger sphere to just what we know that is going on. And that's why this issue of Satan and Satanology is so important for us to understand. If we're going to forcefully advance the kingdom, if we're going to work alongside working for God, if we're going to work alongside each other, it's necessary that we understand these doctrines. As we discovered last week, a majority of people totally dismiss the reality of Satan. I shared with you the statistic. 60% of the Americans reject the concept of Satan, believing that evil is just, you know, it's present, but there's no real force behind it. And we examined that pretty thoroughly. However, our first premise as followers of God is to accept that everything that we read in here, everything is authentic and inspired of God. As a matter of fact, this is the way he said it. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, here's a word that you'll probably never use again the rest of your life. Look at this word up on the screen. Theopanustos. It literally means... You want to say that along? Somebody said that. Theopanustos. Go ahead. Say it with me, everybody. Theopanustos. Now, you'll never probably use it again unless you want to amaze somebody at the drinking fountain tomorrow at work. But it literally means breathed into. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 is saying. God breathed life into his word. He inspired it. These are not just the lame writings of some guys who lived thousands of years ago. God inspired it. Now, with those thoughts in mind, Let's step back again in time to where we left off last week, all the way to 605 B.C., at a time when there was a tyrant king who ruled over the then-known world by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember learning about last week at the Battle of Carchemish, how Nebuchadnezzar swept in and wiped out two of the world's superpowers in one battle, wiped out the Egyptians and the Assyrians, and never again did they reappear on the world history scene as a superpower. And in the midst of his sweeping in and taking over Egypt and taking over Assyria, he moved through this little state known as Judea. And he carried all the Judeans, the Jews, off to Babylon. And in the midst of those nobles that he hauled away to Babylon to be his slaves, was one young man by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel found himself behind the walls of Babylon 15 years before God showed up and said to him, Ezekiel, you're going to be my watchman, and I want you to write down these things that I'm about to tell you. 15 years, never hearing from God. And then God shows up and he says, write this down. Now, understand with me, Ezekiel is a real person. 
a real historical person. As a matter of fact, if you went to a rock today, you can go to the tomb of Ezekiel. Came across this picture. This is a very unusual thing because in the midst of Iraq, Islamic nation, there's a building that's set aside 70 miles south of Baghdad. Today, it's a mosque where the people of Islam worship. But up until 50 years ago, it was a Jewish synagogue. And if you look at the writing above those blue tiles, it says, here lies the great prophet Ezekiel. A real historical person lived in Iraq, in Babylon, revered by the people, given this burial site. Now think of Ezekiel as like a watchman. A watchman over the nation and a watchman for you individually, personally, to his people living at that time. His responsibility was this. Ezekiel, you're going to warn the nations about what's about to come, but I want you to warn my people individually. Because reform within a nation never takes place unless reform takes place within the individual's heart first. So he was a warner of the people saying, come back to God, and then our nation will come back to God. Kind of an important point just before an election, wouldn't you think? Return to God, and your nation will return to God. That was his responsibility. Now, God gave him this assignment to proclaim in Ezekiel 28. I signed you this responsibility last week to read Ezekiel 28 because of this proclamation over a people who lived in a region known as Tyre. Now, Tyre was a very prosperous area. So if you've got your Bibles this morning and you want to turn to Ezekiel 28, this would be a good time to do that. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's some in the pew racks in front of you. And by the way, this is a trademark of New Hope. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those from the pew with you. All the scripture I'm going to share with you this morning is going to be up on the screen. But you're welcome to also take one of those scriptures along with you when you go home today. Now, in Ezekiel 28, God gave Ezekiel an assignment. He said, I want you to proclaim a judgment over the king of Tyre. This is the remains of Tyre today. A real port, 125 miles northwest of Jerusalem, sits on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very, very prosperous area at the time of Ezekiel's life. Now, if you read Ezekiel 28, you heard this word, T-Y-R-E, Tyre, appear over and over and over again. This is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to understand. And I want you to go with me verse by verse when we step, where we pick up at verse 11 to help you to understand this passage. Because what happens in verse 11 directly translates from verse 1 to 10. Okay? Now, this is where we started last week. Ezekiel 28, verses 1 and 2. You'll see it up on the screen. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader, the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God. What sin does God seem to hate more than any other sin? Pride. 
God seems to have real wrath attached to pride. And he allows people to go on for a period of time until he responds to the issue of pride in someone's heart. Now follow this thought process with me. What caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden? Seeking after the fruit of the tree, which God said, I don't want you to eat from that. Satan shows up on the scene as the tempter, and all he has to do is appeal to their ego. God doesn't want you to eat from the fruit because he knows in the day that you do, you will become as God. Did her heart swell with pride before she took the action? Before she ever reached for the fruit, the pride swelled within her. God hates pride. And so that's what you see happening. That's what happened with David when he counted the many men of Israel. That's what happened with the nation of Israel. That's what happens with us when we refuse to repent. Every time we say, no, I can do this on my own. No, no, I don't need that. I sure don't need that. I can do this. That's pride of the human heart. Now, because of great pride, God says, I want you to proclaim what's called a lamentation or a dirge over the prince of Tyre. Now, why is it so important that in verses 1 through 10, what God did with a corrupt king who lived several thousand years ago, so important that it made it into the annals of Scripture? I think you're going to see the answer to that question as this begins to unfold to you as we look through this text. The human prince of Tyre, the king, ruled over a very, very prosperous region. As a matter of fact, it was so prosperous that Nebuchadnezzar wanted it for himself. Now look with me up on the screen at Ezekiel 28.9 and listen to God's judgment. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer? Nebuchadnezzar became his slayer. Though you are a man and not God, in the hands of those who wound you, you will die the death of the uncircumcised. Uncircumcised, anytime you see that in Scripture, means a non-Jew. means a Gentile is going to do something to him. You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now at this point, God is still dealing with the prince, the earthly king of Tyre. And what happened shortly after this proclamation is what you'll see on this map on the screen. Let's bring that slide up. The siege of Tyre that took place took place in two different forms in history. What the king of Tyre had done is he built himself an island city out in the Mediterranean, and he controlled all the sea lane ports. And you can imagine, if you control the commodities of the world, you become like OPEC. Okay, You become enormously wealthy. He controlled the shipping lanes of the then-known world, and he became very, very proud. Nebuchadnezzar wanted Tyre so badly for himself that he actually built a ramp out across the ocean to the city of Tyre and conquered the city. And then Alexander the Great returned several hundred years ago, several hundred years later, and did the exact same thing. And Tyre was never heard from again. Does God bring about his judgment and his promises? He does do that. Now, at this point, Daniel's addressing 
the prince of Tyre. I want you to see the change in words that takes place in Scripture. Say to the leader of Tyre, it says in verse 2, if you have a King James version of the Scripture or an RSV version of the Scripture, it might actually say the prince instead of the leader. Here's the interpretation of that actual word, Nagid, a commander, military or religious captain, a governor. But notice, there's nothing royal attached to that title. He's not a king. A Nagid is one who's less. Now, your text should say the same thing as you look at that. Say to the ruler or the prince. And then God says in verse 11, Now, Ezekiel, I want you to understand who's really behind this world power, the prince of Tyre. I want you to understand what's really going on. And he reveals to Ezekiel what you're about to find out, that on the world sphere, operating behind some world governments, are powers that we haven't begun to dream of, except for God's revelation through Scripture. The world considered this individual, Ithobal, Ithobal was his name, the king of Tyre. The world considered him to be the king, but God gave him a lesser title, that of Nagid, the prince. He knew who the real king of Tyre was, and that's what comes out in verse 11. So Ezekiel turns his attention away from the earthly realm and begins looking at the spiritual realm. And it's unfolded to him what's going on. Now, verse 11, this is what it says. You'll see it up on the screen. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. The word changes now. Malek. Over the Malek, a king, a royal, a whole new person, a whole new realm is begun to unfold here in verse 11. And it appears, as you look at this text, that God is mourning the fall of Lucifer, a lament over what happened in eternity past. Son of man, take up a lament. Verse 12, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. King James and RSV say, you seal up the sum What does that mean? You seal up the sum or you have the seal of perfection. When God began his creative work, when God established creation, he set boundaries and limits. For instance, when you think of Genesis, he said of the oceans, this far you may go and no farther. God set up limitations. The seal of the sum means of all the limitations that were set, Lucifer filled them all. You were perfect. You filled up the sum total. You completed creation. Now, that's a very interesting phrase to declare something that perfect, to be totally, absolutely perfect. If you go to a jeweler, what do they have in the showcase with lots of spotlights on it but a diamond spinning in the midst against black velvet? to the naked eye, looks flawless until you put the microscope on it. There was no need for a microscope when it came to Satan. He was the showroom model. 
You could go into the Saturn dealer, and they've got cars out in the parking lot that look really nice. But inside the showroom, they've got the car that they really, really waxed up. And all the spotlights are hitting it. It is perfect. The showroom model. That's Lucifer, and that's what Scripture is saying. You're the showroom model. Now, verse 13, it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now, this begins to get really, really interesting. Because there's some theology going on as we move forward here that is absolutely fascinating, that reveals the nature and character of God. Those stones that we just referred to, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy and you read about the stones that God assigned to be put on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, they're the exact same stones. Lucifer not only held the position of a very important being in heaven, but he also held important, valuable jewelry that was his covering. The tie between the high priest of Israel and what God details here cannot be missed about the role that Lucifer served. A very high, very prominent role. Now, I want you to begin to understand the ranks of the angels. We're going to look at this a little bit more in detail next week. But it's important that you understand where Lucifer fell in the ranking in heaven. The cherubim of God guarded what? When you think of the Old Testament and you think of the details that God said, I'm going to set my cherubim over this area, they have the responsibility for guarding three very important things. The first one, the Garden of Eden. When man was cast out and God said, I'm going to put an angel at the gate to keep man from coming back in, cherubim. When God delivered his word to the Israelites and he said, I want you to keep my commandments in a box, where did he have them keep them? Inside the Ark of the Covenant. What guarded the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. And then when you read Isaiah and you read Ezekiel, you see that the cherubim also guarded the throne of God. They were the ones who were closest to God. Lucifer was a cherubim. Three ranks of angels. Angels, ordinary angels in heaven, nothing ordinary about them. We'll consider them the worker bees. Think of like in the military, in the army. If you belong to the army, every guy who's in the army says, I'm part of the army. Every guy who says, I'm part of the navy, I'm part of the navy. But within the different military branches, you have rankings. Think of the ground pounders, the soldiers, as the angels. Next rank up, seraphim. Think of them like the captains, lieutenants if you want. They have a lot of responsibility. The next rank up and the highest rank that we know of that Scripture reveals to us is the cherubim. And the cherubim were closest to God. As a matter of fact, look at the definition that Ezekiel gives in Ezekiel 1.10 of how unusual a cherubim looked. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. 
All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Have you ever seen anything like that? I haven't. I haven't even seen a costume mask like that. It's a very unusual thought to even conjure in my mind. Yet Scripture tells us this is what Satan looked like in his original creation. And that's very distant from the horrific images that artists have painted today about what Satan looks like, isn't it? He was a beautiful creature. How much of his appearance changed because of the fall, we don't know. But God said, I'm going to give a special responsibility to the cherubim. Beyond just being those that carried the throne of God, they were also the bearers of God's glory, the Shekinah glory. They were called the bearers of light. Thus, that's why you find the name Lucifer attached to the shining one, the star of the morning. I know this is very theological, and this might feel like a seminary classroom at this moment, but I want you to get a really good, firm background on just how elevated Satan's position was and how much of his power he took with him to do battle against you. Look at Psalm 99.1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned, where? Above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Isaiah 37.16. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned, where? Above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Okay. So you got the image? Angels are before the throne. Seraphim surround the throne. Cherubim uphold the throne. And apparently, Lucifer was one of many. One of many cherubim. Closer a being is to the throne, the higher in rank they are. And at some point in eternity past... God decided to grab the one called the Shining One and anoint him and say, I'm going to make you extra special. That's why in verse 14, it calls him the one who was anointed. Now, keep this picture in your mind. Wherever the word mountain is also used in Scripture, it it refers to the dwelling place of God. So when you see the mountain referred to in verse 14, it's talking about God's sanctuary. Now look at verse 15, keeping those things in mind. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Just as his being was perfect, his actions were also perfect perfect. Here's an attribute that Satan, Lucifer, had that you didn't have. He had the power of contrary choice, meaning that he was created perfect in his ways. He was not born into sin. He was not born into a planet full of sin. He was created in perfection. And even being created in perfection, even being a cherubim, 
even being one who is upholding the throne of God and the bearer of the Shekinah glory, he chose to rebel. You can't choose to rebel. You can only choose to return. That's an important thought to keep in mind. You walked in the midst of the stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So here's the big question. The one thing that you have to take home with you today. What in the world was Lucifer thinking? He was not omniscient. Get this straight in your mind. As much as Hollywood wants you to believe, Satan cannot read your mind. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipowerful. He is not omniscient, all-knowing. He is a created being, created in the likeness of God, but still, nonetheless, a created being. What was he thinking? Here's what I believe you need to know because I really came to this conclusion over the months of studying this. Because he was not omniscient, he really underestimated God. He knew about God, but he didn't know God. If we learn anything through Scripture, it's that in eternity we will continue to learn about God. There is no limit to who God is. And Satan, Lucifer, underestimated. He didn't really understand who God was. And so in that rebellion, he thought he knew God. Do you think by chance that you might be guilty of this? Do you think by chance maybe you think you've got God figured out? Because I know I do. Sometimes I fall into that trap. And then I read in the New Testament where Jesus said, hey, let me remind you, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We think we've got God figured out because we got him in a book. There's way more to God than what we know. And if we knew that much, I'd be impressed. And Lucifer obviously thought he knew a lot about God. Perfect in nature, perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty. And he still chose to rebel. Verse 16, By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you out as profane from the mountain of God, from the sanctuary of God. Remember last week when I shared this verse with you from Luke? Jesus said, and he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus saying, I was there when it happened. Here's another verse to back that up. And in the midst of this, I want you to circle, if you've got your text, the five I wills. This comes from Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, Son of the dawn, Lucifer, star of the morning, catch that phrase. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, here's the first I will, I will ascend to heaven. Second one, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Anytime you see stars associated with God, it's talking about angels. 
I will raise my throne above the angels of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. That's the third one. In the recesses of the north, I will, fourth one, ascend above the heights of the clouds. Fifth one. This one did amen. I will make myself like the most high. And here's God's answer. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to hell, shale, to the recesses of the pit. Last week, I taught you a new word, cosmocrator. Remember that? Cosmocrator. It means one who wants world dominion. Whenever you see the Most High, I will be like the Most High. Any time in the Old Testament where God is referred to as the Most High, and you especially see it in Genesis 13, it's referring to God as the possessor of heaven and earth. You see the link? Cosmocrator, one who wants world dominion. I will be like the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Satan wanted God's job. Looking at his beauty, looking at his power, looking at his strength, he conceived in his mind the revolt and the conflict and the war that took place in heaven. As we wrap this up, I want you to get some imagery in your mind to prepare you for where we're headed next week. These are texts that refer to what Satan did. Revelation 12, 4. And his tail swept away a third of the stars, angels of heaven, and threw them to the earth. Daniel eight ten, And caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who's the commander of the host? Jesus. Do you see now why when in the New Testament, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees said to Jesus, the work you do, you do it because you belong to Satan. Do you see now why Jesus, the Mashiach, became furious? And that was the sin that cut them off, the accusal that Jesus belonged to Satan. The Son of God attached to the fallen one. And because of that, Israel was condemned. There was an accusation that was called the unpardonable sin. And Jesus said, I can't excuse that. You cannot attribute the work of God to the work of Satan because he's so corrupt. Verse 18. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And verse 19 is the end game. And you will cease to be forever. That has not happened yet. That is referring to... To end times. This passage, Ezekiel 28, I know we've just kind of blown through it, is what is referred to as a prophetic perfect. Ezekiel, in the first 10 verses, talking about a present king, 
And in the 11 through 19, talking about the future and the past, a prophetic perfect. He has a reference here to what is going to happen in verse 19. When God, once and for all, will take the great dragon by the tail and flip him down into the lake of fire. There is no contest between God and Satan. To think of Satan as the equal opposite of God is like saying, I can compete in a swimming race against Michael Phelps. There is no race. Before he's in the pool, I'm still standing on the deck thinking, man, he's fast. There's just no competition. God is not in competition against Satan. However, he is a force to be reckoned with until the end of days. We'll get into that another time. We can't get into it right now. But there's a couple things you need to take away for for today. As much as Satan can tempt you and can be the root cause of temptation in your life, he cannot cause you to fall. That is your own independent choice. Satan also cannot tend you, send you to eternal separation from God. That is God's alone to do. He knows whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Satan doesn't care about that. He only cares about separating you from God. And third, Satan will not be able to have victory in your life if you are in relationship with God in such a way that you can challenge him and refute him with the word of God. A friend this week sent me some passages to remember as I'm working through this text. All the texts in Scripture that tell us to flee from things are telling us to flee from youthful lust, to flee from evil, to flee from immorality. But when it comes to Satan, Scripture says, stand. Don't run. Stand. Confront him with the word of God. Because of what Jesus did, we are the victors, and he wants us to think we're the losers. But in Jesus Christ, we have victory.